Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for Tuesday, July 21st, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to talk about ideas, examine them in the light of facts, trying to make sure that we're considering a variety of opinions and perspectives, keeping our discussions in good faith, staying off that damn ivory tower, trying to keep you and ourselves adequately informed. Wow, you took my thing. I took one of your things. Well, we know that we are human. We know that we don't know every perspective. We believe that perspectives other than our own can be valid and can have merit to them, which is the basis of not being on the iFree Tower. So, Evan, we got a bit of a special episode today, right? We do. The bulk of our episode is an interview with Mike Minetta, the national director of Wolfpack, an organization that is attempting to force an amendment process to give us a 28th amendment to address campaign finance reform and get money out of politics. So here we go. I'll probably... All right, adequately informed listeners, we have a special guest joining us today. His name is Mike Manetta. He is the national director of Wolfpack, a group which has a mission of getting money out of politics, overturning Citizens United, and doing so by amending the U.S. Constitution, something that has not been done in quite a long time. So we're very excited to talk to him. Michael Manetta, thank you, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So the first thing I think that our listeners would like to know is that you are proposing a 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution with the goal of overturning Citizens United and trying to get money out of politics. As you're proposing it, what would this 28th Amendment look like? Great question. So I will say sort of to that summary with with a a, a slight (laughs) clarification. Um, Sure. So what we're doing at Wolfpack is we are fighting for an amendment that will fix our broken campaign finance system. And what exactly the amendment will say or do, we're not dictating that at Wolfpack. So we don't actually say overturn Citizens United. There are multiple solutions that could work to fix our broken campaign finance system. Um, What we're essentially doing, uh, I guess maybe just to give you the two minute version, is we have determined that the corruption happening in Washington, D.C., of special interests that have essentially captured uh, our federal government, is, is so systemic at this point that only in a constitutional amendment is going to be capable of fixing it for the long run, right? Only an amendment goes above Congress, goes above the Supreme Court to be the new law of our land. So once you determine that you need an amendment, there's only two ways to get an amendment according to the way Article 5 is written. One way is two-thirds of Congress can propose an amendment or two-thirds of the states can apply for a convention to propose an amendment. Now, something that a lot of people don't realize is that the majority of U.S. constitutional amendments have included a state-based convention campaign. Um, so it's a it's a logical path. State legislators are also more responsive to the people. Uh, they'll still take our phone calls. They'll meet with us. They'll hear us out. Uh, you know, Congress is the source of the problem. So for us, when you look at those two options, it's a fairly simple uh, decision. So what we're essentially doing is we're getting states to call, apply for 
a convention under Article 5 on the specific topic of fixing our broken campaign finance system. And so far, five states have done it. We would need to get all the way to 34 to actually be able to have a convention, allow the states to come together and discuss the topic and ultimately propose an amendment, something that 38 states could agree on. Um, So that's, I guess, the maybe a little bit more than two minutes, but (laughs) close. Um, (laughs) So the most important thing to remember about this plan, though, and the way that our Constitution is written is that no matter what, whether Congress proposes an amendment, like they could talk about it tomorrow, right? They could decide, hey, we want to propose an amendment on this issue. Two thirds of them would have to agree that's a good proposal. It would have to go out to the states and 38 states would have to approve it before anything actually happened, before it became part of the constitution, right? Um, the convention process, it's a much bigger lift, actually. Two, it's not just two thirds of each chamber. You have to get two thirds of the states, right? Have to apply for a convention on a specific subject, then if we can get all the way there to the two-thirds, 34 states, uh, Congress is constitutionally required to allow the states to come together to hold a convention, but it's only a place to have a discussion. You cannot change the Constitution at a convention. You can only propose the same way Congress can propose. So anything that, I, I mean, assuming we got all the way to convention, it would only be a place to propose and then the states would still have to ratify it. So that safeguard, that ratification safeguard of 38 states is exactly the same whether Congress proposes it or the states. So essentially what we're doing is we're forcing Congress to propose an amendment on this issue with accountability built into our plan. So if they don't propose an amendment, which they haven't really, they haven't made a whole lot of strides on this issue yet, um, then we get to come together, you know, have our states come together and talk about this issue and propose an amendment. Um, Now, the more likely scenario is that Congress will ultimately propose something on this issue. That's what's happened throughout our history. goes back all the way to the Bill of, Light, uh, the Bill of Rights, believe it or not. Uh, Congress initially wasn't going to propose those amendments. New York and Virginia called for a convention to be able to propose them. Congress ultimately did it, as we know. Now, that might not seem like a lot of states, but back then that was actually 20% of the states needed to force a convention. Right now, we're only at 15% of the states. So that and then the best example that we have is the early 1900s, the states or the people of this country wanted to be able to elect senators directly like we do now, right, have elections. And because they used to be appointed and it was really overt corruption that was happening. Bags of cash, you know, left at state houses. And it was set, the U.S. Senate became known as the Millionaires Club. Obviously, obviously they're both <laughs> known as the Millionaires Club now, but. Uh, people didn't yep. like it, right? And it was corrupt. And so what the people did was they used every single tool that they had. They did protest. They did ballot referendums. Um, they did state level legislation. They passed resolutions asking Congress to propose an amendment for the direct election of senators. Now, that was all important and it was all necessary. And that's all happening now around this issue of campaign finance reform. But it wasn't until the states came in and started applying for a convention one by one for that one specific purpose of direct election of senators when Congress finally acted and proposed the amendment out to the states. And by the way, they got all the way to just one state shy of the two-thirds need to force a convention. So they didn't do it at five or 10 or 15 or 20, right? It took a lot of pressure to get them to act. And that's the most parallel situation that we have to today, right? Because you're talking about how they got into power. So, um, and then I'll, I'll just give you one more example in the 80s, we got close to having a convention for a balanced budget. 
uh, that there was a really big push, you know, from conservatives. They wanted to balance budgets, so the states started applying for a convention for one because Congress wasn't acting. And we got all the way to 32 states in the 80s. And what happened was Congress didn't propose an amendment, but they did propose and pass f- legislation dealing with fiscal responsibility. And, and this is not me saying it or Wolfpack. This is in, this is from the Congressional Research Service. You can there's really thorough, in-depth reports um, linked on our website if anybody's interested. But the Congressional Research Service points out that that convention push was actually one of the big factors why we balanced the budget in the 90s. There was such a big movement for it. So that's precedent, you know, for using this as a way to pressure Congress into action. And so for us, this is a no brainer. You know, fixing our broken campaign finance system is what we have to come together on, you know, as Americans. It's not partisan, it's stopping progress on, I mean, literally everything, right, that we care about, left, right. You know, right. it doesn't matter. Congress is not not passing any laws that Americans care about. So um, that's what we're doing. That was definitely more than two minutes. <laughs> hey, but um, hey, that's fine. I, we we do not have a time cap okay. on this at all. So you can you can just go and do whatever. Right. You, say what you need to say. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask, though, um, for you to tease out a little bit more the link between money influencing politics and that congressional gridlock. Can you sort of tell our listeners what you see as the problems sure. involved in having money in politics? Yeah, of course. So essentially what we've created is a system where when we elect somebody to go to Washington, D.C., uh, what they're, they, we've created a system where they have to raise an insane amount of money just to be able to get reelected. Right. I mean, we've seen the numbers. We've all seen them. And they go they're They get larger every single election. Right. It, this is a problem that is getting worse every single election cycle. And it has been for 40, 50 years now. And so we've created a system where, you know, they have to spend so much money to even have a chance of getting reelected that they that they're calling people with a lot of money. They're not calling us. They're not calling average Americans to ask them what they want, you know, passed in Congress or they're, you know, they're not asking for our donations. Um, cause we can't keep up, you know, it's, it's a, you might've seen like Lawrence Lessig talk about this. He's got a really, really good Ted talk about it, but he talks about what, uh, the percentages of people that actually contribute to our elections. And it's like, it's an insane, uh, uh, small number, insanely small number, like less than, uh, one third of 1% or I something. I mean, like. isn't it like they only call people who have a high probability of cutting them a $2,700 check then? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And and look, that's, you know, that that's a problem. And because they're, you know, not only are they needing to raise all this money, but it's actually cutting into the time that they should be studying the issues in their district, representing their people. Instead, they're going across the street into phone booths, right? Or, you know, whatever they call them, call centers, because they can't do it on, on Capitol Hill legally. They ha- literally have to leave the, the premise, go across the street and call people uh, all day asking them for money, call you know, and it's uh, it's just it's a really broken system. So you see it everywhere, right? We see it in the healthcare industry, you know these these big pharma uh, companies are are massive contributors to both political parties. Now you see super PACs being, you know, propped up, uh, it, and it has negative effects for us because it leads to things like pr- price gouging, right? I mean, we're I think the only country, only developed country that cannot negotiate drug prices, and that is because of our corrupt campaign finance system. These these special interests essentially own our government. And I think everybody feels that, you know, but I don't know if people realize what to do about it, you know, which is why we always appreciate 
being able to, you know, talk about our plan because we think we can do it. We think we can actually fix this problem. But, uh, you know, you always see, uh, oh, I always do. I, you know, when someone, uh, a congressperson leaves office, they, what do they do? They go on 60 minutes and they talk about, you know, how much they love representing people, but the raising money was the worst part about the job. I've seen multiple people after they left Congress talk about how it was torturous, you know, that, that the system of, uh, of having to raise money. So um, it's just dysfunctional because when they're talking to those people and they're, they're responsive to these big special interests that can afford to dump, you know, tens of millions of dollars into campaigns through super PACs and these third party groups, they have to be responsive to those groups. Wouldn't you? I mean, if you're running for office, I mean, it's, it's just a natural thing to do. It's not even, it's not even really their fault. They're just sort of just trapped in this broken system. So we see it as our responsibility to provide a way to actually free them from that system of corruption. You know, and I think everybody wants to be free of that system. Right? They don't want it. We don't want it. Um, you know, of course, yes, there are a handful of people <laughs> that are controlling our government right now that want it. But I mean, you're talking about a country, you know, the United States, mm-hmm. over 300 million people in this country and up to 96% of us, 96, 97% uh, want this problem solved. Uh, we're going to get it solved. That's way too many people. And when people are willing to band together, you know, on a certain issue, it's just too much power. We're going to get it done. It's just, it's not a matter of if it's really is a matter of when, um, but you know, we do have to act. And that's part of the message that we always try to explain to people is, you know, no big change ever comes from complacency, right? Or right. in action, we do have to uh, be willing to take some action here and get this done. It's definitely sure. Uh, it's definitely interesting to me how, like you said, so many Congress people come out, you know, after they retire, they quit and they move on to lobbying. That how much they hated doing all that fundraising, but everyone just kind of does it. It just kind of shows the like kind of small C conservative nature of life where. Like somehow that's just the price you pay for being a congressperson is that you just got to sell your soul and fundraise money for hours and hours a day. And nobody wants to give it up because maybe they've figured out some little niche how they can get it done. And it's like, wow, if the other person can't, you know, if this is a way I can get a leg up. But, you know, that's not how we want uh, our uh, members of Congress to be doing that. Yeah, exactly. And and I would imagine once you have that position of power, you want to keep it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, so yeah, of course, you know, there's a lot of uh, bonuses and benefits that go along with being a, a U.S. congressperson. So yeah, of course, they're going to do it. You know, they're going to do it for as long as they can, most people, but, um, but it's harmful. I mean, that's the bottom line is that it's harmful to uh, the way that our government operates. You know, it's, it's harmful to the entire concept of self-government, right? And that is the, the foundational principle of the United States is that we have self-government and that is actually being stolen. You know, some people could argue it's completely stolen, already gone. Uh, you know, there's that Princeton study that you guys may have seen that came out a few years ago that showed that there was zero, statistically zero correlation between what the American people wanted, you know, that cared about for issues and what Congress passed for legislation over a 40 year period. Zero. And there was a correlation between what, you know, the upper, upper elite and special interest wanted. There was a direct correlation. So, um, 
Yeah, this stuff is provable. Yeah, there was in, in numbers, and it's, the, it's it's out of control. Yeah, there was a similar study that I saw that tracked legislative behavior and did find that the wealthier the contributor was, the more likely their views were to be represented. So I feel like there is a great consensus around getting this changed, but I don't know if I see that same consensus in terms of the methodology and how we get it changed. And I know you've said that Wolfpack isn't trying to dictate what goes into the amendment, and that's uh, I can appreciate that, but I am interested in what kinds of policy solutions and what kinds of safeguards we would need built into a 28th amendment to make sure that this doesn't happen anymore. Sure. Really good question. So I'll give you first, we'll start with the most likely amendment, right? And we've already seen it, actually. It's already been proposed in Congress. Uh, Senator Udall, uh, essentially, uh, his amendment said the states have the right to regulate their own campaigns how they see fit on the the, uh, federal level, because right now they can't. Right. So I'll just give you a quick example. The state of Montana had over 100 years of common sense campaign finance laws because they were one of the first states affected by the corruption in the late 1800s. And they liked their laws. Right. They worked for the most part. They really worked for the state of Montana. And when some of these Supreme Court cases started to happen, like Citizens United is obviously the big one. Right. That people um, can relate to and know about. Um so when, when these court cases happened, it essentially allowed these super PACs to funnel like dark money, outside money into the state of Montana, and they hated it. So they, t- it, they took it all the way to the Supreme Court of Montana, and the, course, the, the, the court essentially said, we're going to ignore Citizens United. We like our laws. Uh, you know, we want to keep them. We've had them for 100 years. And the, so the Supreme Court just threw it out. Like they wouldn't even hear the case, right? They said, no, we've already decided on this. We've already made our decision. So we're not even going to hear your case. So that's a really big problem just in itself, right? So the Supreme Court is essentially dictating what the states can and can't do with their own uh, campaign finance laws. So Udall's amendment essentially just basically gave the power back, right, um, to, to the states to be able to do that. So that is one possible solution. And I think that's something that is would be popular enough to be ratified by 38 states. Because you always have to remember that that's, that's a really high threshold. Right? Amending the Constitution is really difficult, as it should be. But three quarters, 75% of our states are going to need to approve it. So could, could we start there? Uh, I think we could. I think that's, that's, you know, that's possible. Uh, if the states decided to hold this convention, you know, if we got to 34 we held a convention on the topic of campaign finance reform. I think there could be all kinds of really positive solutions. That's why, like, you know, we talk about using this as a strategy, right? The Congressional Research Service actually referred to it as the prodding effect, prodding Congress to take action. But we actually want a convention. We think it was it's it's a democratic process. People come together, they have conversations. Uh, the states are far more capable of writing a better amendment than Congress at this point. So uh, I think that you could see a lot more creative solutions if that happened. You know, there's um, there's certain types of citizen-funded elections. I've heard of uh, a few good ones. Uh, one particular uh, and was in Connecticut, and uh, a state legislator described it to me one time as how they initially funded it to get it off the ground was finding like uh, like uh, change in your seat cushions, right? 
because they had a, this fund in the state for people who had who returned uh, bottles. If you recycled, you know, bottles and cans or whatever, the state had to pay you a certain amount. And over the years, no one returned enough. The people people of the state just didn't return enough. So they had this fund there just not being used. So essentially they use that to kick off like a, a citizen funded election. And how it works is it it's skewed. So if you're running for like, let's say state representative, you would have to, to raise a certain amount of money from your district and you would have to get a certain amount of peti- petition signatures, right? To show that you actually have uh, support from people within your district. And if you got that five, I'm just using this as an example. These aren't real numbers. If you got the 5,000, sure, yeah. uh, if you were able to hit that mark, right? then you would be eligible for whatever it was, you know, from the fund. So maybe let's say it's 50,000 to be able to get your message out there. And everybody would be essentially having the same playing field. Right. And from what I heard, they loved it. I mean, at at the time, I mean, I talked to people on both sides of the aisle. I'm sure it's not perfect. I'm sure you could find plenty of people who say, you know, no, this and that is wrong with it. But uh, everybody chose to run on it and they didn't have to, you know, because again, with the citizens United ruling, you can't make that mandatory. You can only make it optional to go along with all of the private funding. But, but from to my knowledge, from what I heard, uh, everybody just really liked that system because they could only they'd only have to fundraise for a certain amount of time, and then they'd be able to go and get their message out there to the people. Um, so I'm mean, I'm not even saying that that's you know the solution that I would go with. I'm just saying that's one that I've heard that was interesting. Uh, but these are things that would need to be figured out. You know, I know there's like there's voucher systems, you know, the states could come together and say, you know, transparency is what we need. We just need much stronger transparency laws across the board. And that could solve the problem. I personally don't think that that's enough. But, you know, again, we're not we don't the way that the Constitution is written. I don't get to make that decision. You know, Congress can propose it or the states can come together and propose those ideas. So, um, yeah, I hope that gives you a little bit better idea of where of where we're going. But essentially, what we're doing is we're forcing a an amendment in the bare minimum would be, in my opinion, something that allows the states to have the control that they did for 100 years. You know, I, mm-hmm. I like that historical aspect because I feel like um, a lot of people tend to believe that the way things are today are the way things have always been. And, you know, in something in regards to this, and this is very much not the case with campaign finance, where, you know, for most of the history of the United States, there were caps or, you know, it didn't have as much influence. People weren't, you know, fundraising all this time. And now it's just off the wall. It's no holds barred. But this was this is recent. This isn't history. Um, That's right. Yeah, this isn't how it always has been. That's exactly right. People don't realize that. Yeah. And it's it's really fascinating history. And it's again, it's not partisan. People tend to think of it, you know, in that way, because we have such a hyper partisan country right now. But this issue has never been partisan. You know, even the Supreme Court, they, they uphold those laws that protected our elections for, yeah, ever, right? For a very long time, for almost the entire existence of our country. And it's always been a work in progress. We've never had, a you know, this perfect democratic system where, Congress represented the people, but there's no reason we can't fight for that, right? Right. Uh, I mean, we have the internet now. Think about that. Like the fact that we can talk, you know, uh, and and tell people like, hey, you know, we have this thing called the Constitution and it's pretty damn powerful. You know, they, they gave us over 240 years ago a way to change it. You know, this document that we can actually change, they give us, you know, they outlined it. They said, this is what you do if you see big problems. They knew there was going to be 
all kinds of unforeseen problems. Oh, yeah. You know? And we've solved some really big problems in our past by amending our constitution. And this is this is the one. You know, We feel this is our generation's uh, issue to solve, right? Well, and it's weird. You and I and, you know, Evan, we see it, you know, we see the Constitution in those terms like, you know, it can be changed. And many of the founding fathers intended it to be changed. But we seem to be in a in an odd period where we almost, you know, it seems like there's a general belief that the way things are is like sacrosanct. And this is how it was deigned to be. And if, if, you know, we can't really change anything in the Constitution or how our government works anymore, when that's just simply not the case. It just seems like we've all decided that this is how things are. This is how the world is. And this is how our country works and how it always has worked when, again, that's not the case. Yeah, exactly. And I would imagine it's always been that way, right? Certain uh portions of our population, no matter what happened to be going on at that time in our country, pretty good chunks of the population, I would imagine, or, yeah. you know, we're resistant. And that'll be like that all the way through this amendment. You know, there's going to be people resisting and saying, no, everything's fine. We don't need to, you know, or, or they'll say this is too far, right? We don't need an amendment. We can do it other ways. Um, so the good news, though, is that to amend the Constitution and get big chains like this, you don't actually need everyone. Mm-hmm. And this has been one of, for me, one of my, one of the things that I hold on to, right? To that, where I, I keep the most hopeful, where I'm able to stay the most hopeful. Um, and it's math. And I, you know, I've said this before, but math was always my least favorite subject. I hated it. Uh, <laughs> uh, growing up, you know, in, in high school, it was just, I never saw the point, you know, I was, wasn't interested. But here, you know, at Wolfpack and this movement, it actually comes down to math, right? So, there's one example that I give is, you know, we do need resources. That's just a fact to get this done, right? At Wolfpack, we only have three full-time employees right now. And, uh, you know, that's not enough to get it done. That's not that's not going to be enough to get us all the way to where we need to go. Um, but if you think about it this way, you know, we're, we're small dollar funded, right? So people chipping in $10 a month, $25 a month, whatever they can do. Uh, that, like over 98% of our funding is just from that, right? From people just chipping a little bit each month. If we had just one third of 1% of our population willing to chip in just $10 a month to this plan that can work if we execute it, we would have $10 million a month <laughs> to get mm-hmm. this done. Uh, that is real power. And that, and just think about how small of a percentage that is compared to how many people in this country actually want this problem solved, right? So I look at that and I'm like, well, yeah, that's why you know we just need to get our message out there. We need to tell people you know, we need to band together. We need to, we need to focus, you know, we need to focus. We have to fix this issue first. Then we can go on to fixing all of the other issues because man, there's plenty to fix. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But it's, but it's math. It's not that it, we don't need everyone, you know, and, and we just don't, we need the, we need the fairly small percentage of people that understand that there's a problem, but actually are willing to take the further step of taking action. Right. And they're there. I'm positive there's enough of us out there that that you know that in time, over the next. I mean, I we wanted to get it done in five years. We didn't do that. <laughs> um, so can we get it done from five years from right now? Yeah, I think if we had enough people come into the movement, yes, we could. We could do it almost, not instantly, but damn close to it. If we had enough people actually contributing, we could do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I I definitely want to get 
into the specifics of Wolfpack and how you guys are actually working within states and how individual listeners could perhaps reach out. But I do want to loop back to a, a couple of things here because I think there's just so many interesting concepts flying around and some that I want to tease apart a little more. When I hear... Uh, something like let the states decide. I think that's all well and good, but I think a lot of times it ultimately comes down to then what those states are able to do. Do you have information about what worked so well in Montana that they had laws that they really did feel strongly about that their Supreme Court wanted to keep instead of federal law? Is there some sort of... Mm -hmm general policy strategy that we know works on a state level. Yeah, I'm not really an expert in all of those state level laws. Uh, I can tell you our counsel, legal counsel, his name is Sam, Sam Fieldman. He loves to have that conversation. He'd be a really good guest for you guys if you wanted to really dive into some of those state level laws. The main thing that came out of like the Montana case and that I see the common theme that I'm seeing across the country is the allowance of these super PACs, right? So it's not even just the laws that they had. It's the fact that the Supreme Court has allowed these monsters, right? These just huge behemoth organizations to just rise up out of nowhere. And we don't even know where the money's coming from half the time, right? So the trick mm -hmm. is, I'm sure you guys know this, but it, the, the trick is that you can donate to a, like a nonprofit, right? And that, mm -hmm. And they do not have to disclose all of their donors, right? So the transparency is not there. And then they can donate to the super PACs because super PACs are actually transparent, believe it or not. So mm -hmm. they have to disclose every donor. But a lot of times those donors are like a C4 and they can just bundle and package donations all day long. And we don't know where the, where the hell that money came from. So Wolfpack, even though, you know, we, we, we technically have a super PAC and a nonprofit for different purposes. And even though we don't have to disclose the donors to our nonprofit, uh, we do anyway. They're all on our website. So, uh, you know, we, we really believe that that's an important thing to do as an organization, but we've lost it as a country. You know, uh, it's just mm -hmm. it's just not there. And it's just getting worse every election cycle. There's no way to know where this money is coming from. It could be, you know, coming from being funneled in through foreign governments. It's definitely going across state lines. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you another example of a real life example from a conversation I had with a state legislator, a state senator. Um, Republican, right, who essentially thought that Citizens United got it right. He said, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm a businessman, you know, and I think that corporations should be able to give unlimited amounts of money to my campaign. And he said, but uh, I think that those corporations, those companies should have to exist physically in my district, right? So he called it like a voter donor rule. If you can't vote for me, you shouldn't be able to donate to me, right? So his his biggest problem was the money being able, you know, being funneled into their state, you know, uh, and it's both sides of the aisle. You know, I can tell you that for sure. This particular senator that I'm thinking about um, was a Republican. And for that reason, even though he mostly agreed with that ruling, he still championed our legislation because mm -hmm. he saw the need that we have to force this conversation and we can do a lot better than we are right now. And at the end of the day, I mean, I'm not, I don't think we're going to fix everything. Like this is not a silver bullet, even a 20th amendment, you know, however it's written ultimately is probably not going to be a silver bullet. Right. Um, but it, the thing that everyone seems to agree on is that it's getting pretty urgent that we have to do something, you know, if we cannot keep going at the rate that we are, it's spiraling completely out of control. 
Absolutely. And now I think that this is something that's come up a couple of times, and I just want to sort of put it out in the open and, and get your perspective on it. But Citizens United, when we talk about the way how you know history hasn't always been like this, that does seem to be the inflection point. Do you have any insight as to why Citizens United shook out the way it did and any more details about the impact that that has had on our political process? Uh, sure. Yeah, that, that that court case, essentially, uh, I've heard people refer to it as um, shooting a, a dead horse, basically, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, our, our form of representative government uh, had been under attack for quite a while before Citizens United came along. It actually started, the first one uh, that most people point to is the Buckley versus Vallejo, right? Which essentially said, that spending money elections is a form of free speech. And, uh, and that is basically just, you know, it, it's been exaggerated, right, throughout, the, throughout the, the years. And a lot of people, smart people and people even on our side of this issue that feel like we need to f- do something about our campaign finance system. I've heard uh, a lot of people on, on our side say that the court, the case may have been decided correctly, but the way that it's been interpreted, uh, you know, has not been. I mean, so, you know, I don't I don't have a strong opinion on that as far as like whether it was actually decided correctly or not. But the essence of it is that corporations are essentially human beings that have free speech rights and they can spend as much as they want. And, you know, the, the reason that I mean, I guess just to get into it a little bit, um, the reason that, I, that that is skewed, in my opinion, is that even if it is speech, it can still be regulated, right? So like when we go to a committee here in Absolutely. Wolfpack, uh, they don't let you speak for as long as you want, right? Right. Uh, you know, most of them actually will limit you to like two or three minutes. And why do they do that? Right? Why do they put those limits on your speech? It's because they want to allow for the most amount of people to be able to speak and have their voice heard, right? So when you when you equate that to people, you know, these companies and corporations and special interests, I mean, it's unions too, right? I mean, we, we always talk about both. It's, it's people on both sure. sides of the political yeah. spectrum. When you allow them to just spend unlimited amounts of money, they're able to buy a lot more airtime than we can, right? <laughs> uh, a lot more. And so they're gobbling it all up. There's only a certain amount. Right. So you're talking about mm-hmm. uh, these special interests able to basically just have more more of this speech. Right. And so I just like for me, I don't actually like to get into it because I think that even if it is free speech, if that's true, you can still limit it. So, uh, you know, if it's in, so it's in, in my opinion, it's infringing upon our right to self-government. Right. So you got you have two constitutional rights here at play. One is you have the Supreme Court talking about, uh, you know, uh, freedom of speech, but then you also have this constitutional right of self-government, and one is currently infringing upon the other, and that's what the the Supreme Court of the United States did a pretty good job of, you know, balancing throughout the years. But these court cases have just gone; they've gone the wrong direction essentially, and they've they're it's just not uh, it's not going to hold up, you know. And and the American people see it. That's the thing, you know. Pe- if you ask them, you know, is this good? for, for our, our country to be able to have this, you know, unlimited amounts of money being spent in our elections. It's, it's pretty, it's astonishing. I mean, again, I think it's up to like 97% of 
of Americans. So, well, uh, yeah. And it also, that kind it of seems like, you know, and all this money that comes, um, I, I think I saw it somewhere where it seems like to be the most effective is in the kind of areas where there isn't a ton of information. Like the most famous example is when, uh, you know, the the Tea Party took over in Congress and in state houses all across the nation in like uh, 2012 because, you know, there wasn't a lot of money or information in all those elections and they were able to just pump dollars into it and make people, you know, think things and then. All of a sudden, they have a uh, stronghold over the entire country. And, you know, like, uh, you know, sometimes these state uh, referendums that come up where nobody really knows anything, but, you know, it, it will favor, you know, one company or whatever. And, you know, they can pump money out there, say no to whatever. And nobody knows anything about it. And then they get to the ballot box and they're like, oh, yeah, I heard that one radio commercial and they said vote no on it. So I believe that. So, yeah, uh, that's exactly right. Yeah, there's just it's too it's too much influence and it's just it's harmful to if we really believe in self-government, you know, and a a government that's, that's supposed to represent the people. We have definitely lost our way there and we've got to get back on track. My thinking on it has always been that if we say that money is speech and that's a right you know it's a freedom and we also acknowledge that some people have more money than others it's as if we're saying that some people get to have more freedom because they have more money and that that just feels wrong to me so um yeah Yeah. it's it's uh yeah it's it's, out of balance it's something that just always has felt wrong it feels wrong yeah well, yeah. and, and also a lot of the kind of free speech arguments that came from like the founding fathers, it was kind of like the like everybody getting in a town square and debating things and being able to talk about things in that respect where and it, under that context, everybody is pretty equal, like maybe somebody's a little bit more revered or something and their words carry a little bit more power, but they still say it in the same effect. They don't have an extra way to make sure that their voice gets heard a whole lot more than everybody else's. So, yeah. um, Oh my God. Can you imagine what they would say if they could travel through time and, oh see, yeah. and see what these arguments are? They'd be like, wait, what? No, well, I mean, definitely I, not I mean, and there's a kind of inner intersection with the kind of like culture wars debate over free speech where, you know, everybody wants consequence free speech and, you know, there, there's, over you know the past few years, there's been this popular imagination that freedom of speech means the maximalist and you know whatever in the high in the eye of the person speaking it, when that isn't necessarily always been the case and isn't how good societies run. Yeah, it's it, it, just go back to the founders though, real quick. I mean. Do you guys know, I would imagine you do, that when uh, companies had charters that only lasted like 20 years. Yeah. Right? So they were terrified of big special interest. This Their entire constitution was designed to prevent the big special interest from, from running the country. So there's no doubt that they would be horrified if they saw what, what it has turned into, I think. And yeah, I mean, 20 years, they had these companies had to go back and tell the government you know, what good are you doing for, for the country, right? And for the people, for society to be able to even get an extension. So yeah, we've definitely gotten a little bit off course from that. 
Yeah, if you, yeah, for those who don't know, if you were like a business that was any more than just one person, you basically had to go to the government, say, hey, this is what good I'm bringing to society. And they would either approve your charter to be a business and to have this kind of corporate personhood before the law or not. And then you had to go and renew it every so often um, in order to legally run as an entity and we definitely don't have that anymore that's uh that's long gone you can do whatever you want (laughs) as long as you make you know the most money you possibly can for your shareholders that's the only thing that matters now right yeah legally yeah so yes we've got so i think we have yeah (laughs) oh no that's fine this is this is what we're all about we love this oh no i just want the country (laughs) yeah oh (laughs) yeah we don't love that we do not love that yeah (laughs) But I do think we have a really good foundation of what the mission is, what the need is. So tell us a little bit about Wolfpack. How did you guys start? What are you working to do? Or, you know, specifically, how are you working to do it? And uh, just give us a little bit more context about your organization. Okay, sure. Uh, we were founded by Jenk Huger. He's the host of The Young Turks. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yep. Uh, big online news show. And... You know, he was sick of telling his audience that there's all this corruption happening in Washington, D.C. and no way to fix it. So he got it off the ground. He spent years researching, you know, how do we fix it? Uh, He came to the conclusion that we need an amendment and also that this was the way to get an amendment to go through the states. And nobody was doing it. Uh, No other organizations were were using this route. So um, so we formed Wolfpack and myself, you know, I was working for the phone company. Before I, uh, you know, ended up doing this full time, I was uh, just driving around and I had a bucket truck. Nice. <laughs> and I would listen to yeah, all kinds of independent radio. And that's how I started to just realize how bad it is. You know, I, I just couldn't ignore it anymore. I'm just like, Jesus, this is uh, this is something that we have to kind of really address. We have to stop for a minute here, you know, take a breath. Let's focus and, and let's uh, let's fix this. Fix this. So. Uh, I volunteered on the very first day that Wolfpack was announced. Uh, I, I volunteered that day. In fact, I think I woke up at like four in the morning because <laughs> I couldn't sleep. I was actually so excited <laughs> about it because the plan made so much sense to me. And and I had looked at plenty of other plans and ways to potentially get involved and nothing really stood out to me enough to actually want to take action, you know? So yeah, at the time I created like the New Hampshire Twitter and Facebook and I was like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the leader of these. <laughs> it turns out I probably could have waited like six months, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was all over it that first day and uh, just kind of helped to get Wolfpack off the ground, you know, as a volunteer. I mean, I was working a full-time job for the whole first year and a half, probably mm-hmm. working, working a full-time job and then putting probably 40 hours into Wolfpack as a volunteer just because I believed in it and I wanted to make sure that it didn't fail. And then ultimately got hired and, you know, I was originally the organizing director and now uh, the national director. And it's been quite a ride. I can tell you that. Uh, My favorite part about Wolfpack is the people without a doubt, Uh, you know, the, just an incredible culture at Wolfpack, you know, just great cross-section of people, fascinating, intelligent, talented. Um, We're really lucky in that sense. And, you know, that a lot of that does come from that really big TYT audience that we were able to, you know, uh, just draw people in from for quite a while. And it's just it's been an incredible experience. And, uh, you know, for me, I didn't even know that you could go and talk to state legislators. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, like I, I still the first time that I called when I remember I was pretty damn nervous, you know, 
And I'm like, well, who am I to tell like a state elected official, you know, what, you know, how to fix our broken government. Mm -hmm. And what I found was I actually knew more than they did about this. And it was like, it was like an hour conversation. They were really like interested in learning more about it and ended up being supportive. And it was just, I, I felt pretty empowered after that. And then, you know, I was nervous for a while. I, you know, the first meeting, same thing. Um, but each time, each and every time that I ended up talking to, to a legislator about this issue, it was really a good experience. Even people who, you know, I don't necessarily see eye to eye with uh, politically, there were always really pleasant conversations. You know, there's just, there's just, the very first person I ever met actually was someone who I don't see eye to eye with politically at all. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, you know, I could just see the conversation was not going to go in that right direction if we just talked about issues, you know, personal issues. So I just started talking about deep sea fishing, and uh-huh. I, I, I'll just I'll never forget it because it's a very powerful moment for me because we talked for maybe twenty five minutes and just really just you know hitting it off, just having a good conversation. And he looked at me like with just a few minutes left, and he's like, "Wait." what the hell do you want me to do again? <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, you know, we're just trying to save America. That's all. And, right. And, uh, no big deal. Yeah. And, um, but he ended up, you know, not necessarily being like a staunch ally, but he was really friendly and warm. And he's like, okay, well, cool. Well, I'll see what I can do to help. And, you know, good luck. And I, I just realized pretty early on in this process that it's so much about building those relationships, you know, and those state legislators, they really do want to hear from people in their, in their communities. Oh yeah. And, um, and it's, and it's, yeah, it's very empowering for people. Like I've, you know, I've seen countless at this point volunteers, you know, really nervous about going and meeting with their legislator for the first time, but then just being ecstatic afterwards and being like, wow, this is great. We had a great conversation. Now I know them. And they ended up, a lot of our volunteers end up running for office and, you know, just getting more involved in local politics. So for us, you know, we are building this movement to amend the constitution and we are going through the states, but we're getting lots of people who would never engage in politics. We're getting them to do that, you know, and we're, and we teach people, you know, so if you volunteer with Wolfpack, we will walk you through it. You know, we'll say, well, this is how you talk about our legislation. This is who your state senator is. This is who your state rep is. Mm-hmm. And we'll make sure they're comfortable and that they that they go forward with the process, you know, and actually do it and take the action. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about Wolfpack. Yeah, I, I don't think many people understand, you know, with the news and everything today is so nationalized that how much power that they could actually have if they just – show up in local politics or even statewide politics like you know a lot of these people are way are pretty accessible um more so than they would think and you could just uh talk with them like uh in college i uh interned at a state rep's office and my job was to hold like community meetings with community members about legislation and you know, nice. anybody could have yeah. shown up for those right. and just talked about, you know, given their perspective on it, no matter what their perspective was. Um, exactly. And, you know, the rep representative listened um, because they wanted to represent the community. So there's yeah. a lot that can be done there. That's exactly right. Yeah. And even still, when people volunteer with Wolfpack, they know we're going through the states. But when we ask them to contact their their representative, it's still people's inclination to 
contact the member of Congress, right? Because that's the name they know. That's the that's what they associate with being the person that, that represents them in their community. They don't even know that state reps exist in a lot of cases, right? Like you said. Uh, right. So, or they're yeah. like, what power do they have? You know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. And in this case, you know, when you're talking about them in the Constitution, apparently they have a lot. <laughs> yeah. And they don't even know it half the right, time. Right. Right. Exactly. So. It's funny how when you get into government fights, it, you know, all of a sudden you uh, you learn that the people in government don't know what powers they have. Um, yeah. Right. Like I, I remember there was like some budgetary issue in the state of Illinois and it was like, how are we going to fund the universities? And then all of a sudden, like some professor at a university is like, hey, there's like a big fund that's set aside for universities and nobody's using it. And they're like, oh, well, I guess we have money for universities right. now. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, no, exactly. But um, Evan, do you have anything else? Um. Just to say that, uh, yeah, there's definitely power in the people still exists to a degree if you're willing to exercise it. And it sounds like your organization really a big part of that mission is just awakening people to the power that they do have, which I think is really commendable. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Appreciate that. So what are some of the successes that you've had? Sure. So when you're talking about a man, the constitution, it's a little bit hard to rack up a whole lot of big wins, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's quite a process in the beginning, you know, we took a lot of time just to figure out what we're doing, right? So we had maybe three years of just kind of building and and figuring out, you know, what we were going to do for legislation and, and just kind of feeling it all out. And then we had about three years of success. Like we were really kind of hit a hot streak, right? We had, we passed our first state, which was uh, Vermont. And then, you know, that was really exciting. Uh, they, you know, they had really passionate debate on the, on the house floor that I'll never forget right before we passed there. Uh, then we went on and got California, right? Big, biggest state in the, in the union. Uh, that was really exciting. That was passed by a school. That was the team there was led by a school teacher. Uh, and, she wasn't a retired school teacher. She was an actual school teacher uh, <laughs> wow. at the time, Allison Hartson. And uh, they had just built a powerhouse team. They were organized. You know, they uh, they contacted every office. They knew exactly, you know, who contacted each office, when, what they said, what meetings they had to get to pass, you know, committee hearings, uh, the whole legislative process. And uh, that was really exciting. So, you know, yeah, th those first two were, were really just, you know, empowering and, and just started to see what we can actually do here. And then it was Illinois uh, was the third one, again, led by uh, one of our best volunteers, Diesel. And mm. it was just he just they, they ended up calling the team the Mountain Army. Our <laughs> volunteers were in an office one day and uh, it was him. Diesel was in the office with another volunteer and someone from our organization had called the office while they were in there. And they, they hung up and they were like, Jesus, you guys have a mountain army here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was just pure, you know, really just perseverance. The team just wouldn't, wouldn't take no for an answer. They organized, they, you know, did phone banks. They went to the Capitol building. They got to know their legislators and they just told them, Hey, we want you to do this. This is important to us. And then uh, we went on to New Jersey, another big win. Uh, and then uh, Rhode Island. And that was so 
when we passed Rhode Island, we passed the Rhode Island Senate. It was like 10.30 p.m. at night. We had a bunch of us up in the balcony, uh, you know, just packed with volunteers. And we had been there like all week because we were one of the most dedicated groups. No, we were the most dedicated groups. Not going to be humble. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, we, were, we were the most dedicated organization working on legislation that session. And we would stay every single night uh, till, you know, midnight, 1, 1 a.m. It didn't matter. However long that they stayed there, our volunteers would stay there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they would just be there in the hallways, you know. Uh, and then they all knew what we were there. They had, you know, little signs in that that had our, our legislation on it. And when we came up for a final vote, our sponsor stood up and said, "You know, hey guys, just want to remind you, you know, everybody in the balcony, that there's no applause, there's no clapping or anything in this gallery." And so when we <laughs> passed, we actually weren't expecting this, but we passed unanimously. So all Republicans, all Democrats. Wow. Yeah, and it was a really cool moment. And after it passed, the senators actually applauded us. There was like a <laughs> lot of cheers and like clapping, and it was all coming from them. Uh-huh. Um, so you had senators applauding the people, right? Not the other way around. It was really just a, a pretty powerful moment. Yeah, I'd and imagine. So those those were our big, you know, our biggest wins, obviously, because we're passing states, right? I mean, we're we're making American history here in, in a lot of ways, right? We're we're marching towards the thirty four that we need to force a convention on this issue. Um, but we've had plenty of other wins along the way. We've passed many chambers. You know, we just didn't make it all the way in a lot of states. So, um, mm. and and red chambers, you know, conservative controlled states. We've passed the Missouri Senate twice, uh, led mm-hmm. by Republicans. This year we passed two committees in Tennessee with a very respected Republican sponsor. Uh, we've had many Republican ch- uh, champions and sponsors of our legislation throughout the years. Um, we've, you know, the reason I think that we've been able to demonstrate such strong bipartisanship is because of the nature of our plan, right? Because we're not saying, Hey, you have to do this. The amendment has to do this. We're actually allowing, uh, people to say, okay, you know what? Yeah, I, I might, there were, I mean, just to give an example, one Senator did stand up in, in Missouri and said, you know, I might not agree with the amendment that ultimately comes out of a convention around this issue, but we have to do something about the campaign industrial complex is what he called it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So we are building the, the movement in a bipartisan way, which you have to be able to do if you're going to actually amend the constitution. Right. Right. So we could, it would be very easy for us to come out and say, Oh, we have, you know, you have to do this. The amendment has to say this, but we're not going to get there. There's, there's just no way if we, just a couple of, of us, you know, in a back room or something just said, you know, this is it, mm-hmm. this is what we're doing. Um, it's just not how the process is supposed to work. And and it, even if it was, you know, even if we did do that and we were able to get momentum, maybe we could get 10, 15, 20 states. I just, I, I you know, we're, we're pretty confident that we're not going to, you can't get to 38 unless you allow uh, perspectives in, you know, from, from all sides of the political uh, spectrum. So, right. But it's yeah, not- I mean, so yeah, it's been quite right. I'll tell you that, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've certainly, yeah. yeah, you've certainly had a number of successes, but obviously there's a great amount of work still to do. What would you tell our listeners who maybe are interested in getting involved? What can you say to them for action steps they can take? Sure. So the first step is just to simply go to our website. If you want to get involved with the Wolfpack, just go to our website. It's wolf-pac.com and volunteer, and we'll take it from there. 
you know, we'll, we'll make sure you get connected with your state team, go through an orientation, which just gives a rundown of our plan. Uh, our state teams have like weekly calls and they strategize. And, you know, your first order of business will essentially be to get to know your state rep. And it's a little bit of a different world right now because of the pandemic, right? So we would normally say go and meet with them at a coffee shop or at the state house. We can't really do that right now. So we're encouraging our volunteers to set up Zoom meetings, you know, and that's the closest thing right now uh, that we have to to an in-person meeting. So that's that's what you'd be instructed to do. But there's other ways to help in Wolfpack. We have a communications team. Uh, so if you, you know, you can c- contribute writing skills, graphic design, um, pretty much any skill set that you have, web, tech, uh, we will find a place for it here. And if you don't have any time, uh, you can become a member. So we're grassroots funded, as I said earlier. People paying, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty dollars a month. Um, that is always appreciated. You know, every single person that that comes to us and chips in a little bit makes us just that much stronger, just a little bit stronger. So I would say those two ways are the ways that you can help the most right now, right off the bat. And you have a virtual conference coming up. Uh, we do. Yes. Very excited about that. We normally have it in person. So we've had three of them so far. The first one was in Chicago. Uh, the second one was in Salt Lake City. And the third one was in Dallas this last year. But obviously, again, because of the pandemic, it's going to be virtual this year. And I'm pretty excited about it. There's lots of cool stuff. I um, that I can't really say too much because there's a couple things that aren't totally confirmed. But yeah, it's going to be cool. So if you just go to our website and get on our email list, you're going to get all of those updates. Um, Excellent. Yeah. I can tell you that Lawrence Lessig will be part of it. You know, he's kind of known as the godfather of the movement uh, and uh, and our founder, Jank uh, Jank Huger will be part of it, but but several others that I that I can't quite confirm yet, but wow. definitely check that out. Nice. Yeah. And it's going to be now, just, to, just to give a little a, a quick rundown of what it is. It's going to be essentially trainings throughout the weekend. So it's always three days. It's always Friday through Sunday. And it'll be, you know, learn about our plan, learn about uh, different ways to organize uh, things like effective communication that any business can use. But it's also fun. So we're going to like we're having Pictionary one of the nights and uh, virtual Pictionary. It should be a blast. We're having a virtual 5K mm-hmm. and we're going to actually be able to audience is going to be able to like uh, participate and uh, like control like what the person is doing as they're running. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's going to be really fun. That's that's all. That's all I can tell you for now. But uh, please uh, check it out. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a question that we uh, shamelessly steal from the Ezra Klein show to end our interviews. What are three books that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, wow. Great question. Okay. Uh, the first one I would say is Drive. Uh, it's a fascinating book about what motivates people. And uh, it's, yeah, for me, it's one of the most interesting books I've read in in quite a while. The second one is, actually, it's a book I just read on Elon Musk. Um, It's by Mm -hmm. Ashley Vance. There's a couple of them out there on on Musk, but the one one, uh, written by Ashley Vance, it's it's an absolutely incredible story. Hmm. Uh, You'll love it. Uh, I had no idea that his life story was that interesting and what exactly they're doing over there at Tesla and SpaceX. Um, really interesting book. And the other one uh, would be, it's a book called the E-Myth. Have you guys heard of that? 
I have not. I have not. So I read a lot of like leadership books and you know these kinds of things, but this one for whatever reason really stood out to me. It's essentially about how to start a small business, and it's just it's really thorough in outlining the things that you should be thinking about if you're uh, starting a, a business or running an organization of any type. And so you will definitely get something out of that. So those three, you read those three books, you're going to be in good shape. Those are the, those are those are some good ones right there. All right, yeah. excellent, Mike Mineta. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. We appreciate your time. Okay, thanks, guys. I appreciate it too. And we're back. So after that interview, uh. We got a we got one more topic to discuss today. What are we what are we going to talk about, Evan? We're going to talk about school reopening as COVID cases continue to rise in many parts of the country. We are facing the reality that kids will be going back to school or at least facing choices about whether or not to go back to school. For the record, I am not opposed to trying to maintain a sense of normalcy and try to get kids back to school in some capacity. But unfortunately, at least from the personal experience that I'm having with my wife being an employee within the Indianapolis public school system, I am very concerned about the direction that we are heading when we're talking about schools reopening come fall. Yeah, so let's get into some of the nuances of what this conversation is is about so we definitely have the COVID-19 pandemic going on and we're kind of in the midst right now of a kind of you know in some ways you could characterize it as a nationwide resurgence but it never fully died down and the places that are getting hit now are different than the places that were getting hit before so it's not like a reemergence, but it's still very much a very tough issue. We never crushed the curve. Um, you know, funny enough, it, it does almost seem like we um, flattened the curve uh, when it, in, in regards to that original deal of making sure that there was enough hospital capacity to deal with people, but we never got rid of it. So... This is going on and, you know, it's been all right. We earlier in the year, you know, it was pressing enough that we basically canceled the uh, second half of the spring semester for most schools or it was moved into online, you know, kind of weird deal. And then we had summer break come on, which was supposed to be uh, we were hoping. Well, when I say we, I mean, like people who are really watching this, hoping that this would be the time when we would really crush the virus and then in the fall be able to resume school. Um, this is looking like that's not the case where it is a very clear cut decision of whether to send kids back to school um, because the virus is still raging. Um, now, it's not so much that uh, kids are super conductive to getting to it. The risk is not as large, but the risk is still there. And the true risk would be uh, having the, uh, the kids, adults who work in the building. 
Well, the adults work in the building and then somehow the kids possibly taking it home with them to their family and spreading it that way as well. Or the family spreading it to the kids because they're not quarantining and they still need to do whatever. And then the kids bringing it to school and spreading it that way. So there are concerns about that. But then so that would make it seem like it's an easy case. Just don't have school again. But I mean, what's the. What's the case for bringing the kids back to school? Well, the idea is that by keeping kids out of school or shifting to online-only education, we are widening existing disparities in educational achievement. What we found during our sample size of school closure was that kids that were wealthier did not experience losses in learning by learning online. However, middle-income and poor students lost the equivalent of months of education, especially in math. It turns out that there's a reason why we do school in classrooms, because it is preferable. And that's why we would hopefully have kids back in school. Another angle is special education and related services are especially critical to be done in person because students who have existing learning disabilities and difficulties just do not respond well to distance education. Yeah, and a third uh, fact is one that we don't like really like to talk about in terms, you know, in the context of the American, uh, you know, K through eight or K through 12 education system, but the fact that School provides a very necessary function of childcare for a lot of people. And there are a whole lot of families over the course of the past six months or, you know, around that who have had to come up with, I mean, a whole lot more childcare than they have in the past. Now, it has been somewhat easier for some people because... They have also been quarantining, so they've been at home as well. But this function of providing childcare is still a very important one for a lot of people to be able to go out and work and do what they knew need to do to support their family. And if they don't have that, that pu- that puts you know a lot of strain on families who are not able to either a afford healthcare or b have family members who can watch their kids and still need to work. Um, So there is, (laughs) as we see with everything in the coronavirus, there is an economic angle to it. Yes, so clearly there's a vested interest in getting kids back to school. And at this point, we've known that this crisis would be coming for months and months. So it would have been my hope that superintendents principals, people who had the power to make these decisions, elected leaders, would have developed really strong contingency plans for how to get people back into school safely. But as I mentioned, learning about just one example, which I believe is probably fairly representative here in Indianapolis, we're not taking those steps. And I'm going to bear with me while I go on this rant of ways that the reopening plans have been inadequate. Social distancing cannot be enforced, so the rule is three feet of distance between students and other personnel as opposed to six feet. Doesn't matter that that is not scientifically valid, that that won't do anything. 
but that's the regulation. Masks will be provided to students who show up without them, but busing is not going to be altered, so it is possible that students could not wear a mask on a crowded bus and then only receive a mask once they get to school, at which point transmission could have occurred. There is no protocol for positive testing. This is perhaps one of the most shocking issues arising. There is no standardized protocol within Indianapolis public schools for what to do if a teacher, a student, whoever tests positive for the coronavirus. There's no plan in place to get the people who were affected to quarantine. There's no requirement for additional testing of people who might have had exposure. There's not even a universal guaranteed leave time for potential employees who might work with a contract company as opposed to being direct hires. They, the best, and they've been asked about this and questioned because there have been meetings about this held with staff and they have no answers. They say, well, if someone gets COVID, we'll address that on a case-by-case basis, but that's not good enough. That doesn't inspire confidence that they're going to keep people safe. There's no inbound testing, so there will be no way to understand that if bringing people back into the school environment, that they might already have and be spreading the virus. There is very little enforcement of the poor regulations anyway. Can teachers effectively enforce a mask mandate? Little kids who are fidgety all the time, are their teachers just going to have to spend the entire day forcing them to keep their masks on? And teachers are not given the option to work remotely if they have concerns. Students can opt into a remote learning plan, but that same courtesy is not afforded to teachers and other service providers, putting them in direct risk without really their consultation. Specialists like my wife, who's a speech therapist, are at a bigger risk even than teachers because her caseload is such that she has to see 60 students, which is two to three classrooms worth of students, because she doesn't see them all day. She goes from time from from classroom to classroom pulling students. And just because she doesn't see them for as long, it's the volume of students that really make a difference for her risk factors. That is not accounted for. The dealing with cleaning supplies is abhorrent. Apparently, the state is going to, or the city is going to, create a fund and then allocate cleaning supplies to each school, but those are rationed out by the principal. So if you are not able to successfully advocate for yourself, you might not get any cleaning supplies. And, you know, it is only likely that the amount of cleaning supplies provided will not be adequate. Um... Also, the containment is an issue because specialists don't work in the same school. My wife works at two schools, and the occupational therapists might work at three different schools, including one that overlaps, and the physical therapist might work at two or three other schools. So the potential for cross-contamination is enormous. There are not any visitors allowed into the schools, But what does that matter when the cross-contamination is happening? Further, how are you able to 
say there will be no visitors, what if you need a substitute teacher? What if a parent needs to come in for a conference or an emergency? It just doesn't feel enforceable. The regulations that are in place are half measures at best, and it really makes me feel like we are in a territory of something called security theater. It is not safe to reopen schools in the current climate, in my belief. But we're pushing ahead and putting up regulations designed to create the illusion of safety without fixing the underlying problems. And that's pernicious, and that could end up being extraordinarily dangerous to anyone who is in a school environment or interacts with someone in a school environment. And I obviously, we understand the desire to get kids back into school for a whole host of reasons. But if we wanted that reality, we need real precautions and a real plan, not just security theater. Yeah. It, you know, this, I mean... This coming crisis could have could have been avoided. You know, it's just another example of where leadership matters. Um, you know, I could imagine now this is me trying to bring a little good faith that there are probably uh, superintendents and principals and administrators in the school system everywhere who are having to make some very difficult choices um, where they're weighing some very tough, uh, you know, pros and cons to opening back up. But then because there is this real pressure to get kids back to school because it is such a good for them. And when you're young, you know, time matters. And if it turns out that they miss another semester of school, that could be very detrimental to their educational outcomes for the rest of their lives. But then it comes down to that also because we haven't had a national plan and states are very strapped because of loss of sales tax and all this stuff and, you know, lacks of uh, decent leadership in a number of states um, who refuse to even take the virus seriously. There is just... Yeah, there is a dearth <laughs> of resources for adequately combating the virus for things that we need to reopen, for public services that need to exist. It's just there isn't there aren't the resources there for, you know, say the Indianapolis school district to I'm 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 going to guess I'm going to guess that they probably don't have the full resources to be able to fully, um, you know, be safe with this. But then there there's the enormous pressure to get these schools open. And and, and again, it just comes from the top down, um, especially with something like a pandemic. Like we've discussed this before. These decisions can't really be made at a individual level in order to be effective. It has to make, be made at the societal level. And something like school openings would definitely be something that could use a guidance from experts and all that stuff who put together plans at, you know, put out plans at like a national level or put out guidance and then give also give the resources for that to be able to happen. But that's just not happening. So we're left at this 
level where individual school districts are having to make the call themselves and they may or may not have the resources to uh, make the decision to reopen even against all the, you know, in, in light of all the things that they need to reopen for. So it's a tough call that was, should have been avoided. With Like this choice shouldn't have to be made at this yeah. point. Yeah, it um, it's extraordinarily sad that we are here. It is just my hope that we are taking real steps instead of worrying about superficial, perceptual issues. One thing that I would recommend is to mandate hybrid instruction. Say, if the schools have to be open, don't keep kids in here every day. Let them rotate out so that they're still getting a lot of services in the classroom, but we can maintain more social distancing. We can better manage the classroom in ways that will be hygienic. And, you know, I'm far from an expert, but that seems like a common sense solution to me. Instead of pushing for this maximalist reopening, get back on track, rah, rah type of stuff that we're seeing. So, Again, I, I get it, Joe. I completely understand that there are difficult decisions that are having to be made. But I'm questioning, I guess, the motives and the outcomes for pushing for full-fledged reopenings without anywhere near adequate precautionary measures. Yeah, it's this whole thing has just been so much tougher than it's needed to be. Yes, because that. Yeah, like New Zealand has zero cases of coronavirus. Like, and you know, I tend to, I am one of those people where I believe in, you know, maybe it's a myth, the idea of American ex- exceptionalism. I like to believe that we could do anything we set our minds to. And it just seems like we've decided not to set our mind to this. And a whole lot of other things. And it, it gets aggravating because it's like, hey, you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, well, it's a virus. You can't completely get rid of it. And it's like, well, actually, you can get very, very, very close. And like, why wouldn't we try? <laughs> like, why wouldn't we try to get rid of it? It, it, it you know, it came across in this uh in the Mike Mineta interview, but this just kind of fatalism of how that the world is how it is. And there isn't a whole lot we could do to affect it. That I just, I find that a non-starter and I actually find it very toxic. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of shaping up to be one of the great political divisions of our time is do we believe that collective action is possible? Do we believe that collective action should be one of our ideals? Do we believe in banding together to solve problems? Or do we believe in this maximalist, rugged individualism where every person is on their own? Yeah, do we believe that... You know, we could stomp out poverty or that welfare reform or that welfare that came out of the 1960s didn't cure poverty. So there's no way we can cure it now. 
Like yeah, so, the whole thing is is uh, non grata. There was one idea. <laughs> it, it's just it's aggravating, and you know, like I had you know started to kind of loosen up a little bit on you know how I was you know treating going out in society and all that kind of stuff, but it's just you know I'm 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 hunkering back down because things have gotten worse, um, and it it. Again, it didn't have to be like this. It did not. And we're, we still, you know, we still have a president who's denying that this is even bad. Did you see uh, any parts of that interview he did with Chris Wallace? I saw the fact check, but well, that there was a couple. Sort of- Distinct. I saw the one about the Biden police abolition where Trump got completely owned. And then the Washington Examiner ran some salty article about how Chris Wallace was somehow actually wrong. No. Um. Um, (laughs) But there was another one about how Trump was like uh, Chris Wallace said, we had one of the highest mortality rates in the world to this. And Trump was like, no, we have one of the lowest, if not the lowest. And um, there was a fact check there as well. Um, I just love how he hedges like one of the lowest, if not the lowest, like, buddy, we we can verify that if we're the lowest or one of the lowest. Like, People are telling me (laughs) and it just... um, how how far away from the truth that can be and it even more so these days it just feels like we're in in really troubled times as a society the so troubles. yeah <laughs> so uh we'll see how uh how kids go back to school yeah i mean uh do your best to to keep everyone as safe as possible and mitigate from mitigate the fallout from failures in leadership. Yeah. Be as you know, you're not going to solve it all by being the rugged individual, but do as much as you can because it doesn't seem like we're going to do anything collective. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. yeah. Sadly. Well, on that sad note, I think that brings us to an end. Uh, you got anything you want to say, Evan? Uh, thank you to Mike Mineta and for all the people at Wolfpack for agreeing to come on the show. We appreciate your insight and we think our viewers got, our listeners got a ton out of it. Yeah. Um, and then as always, we would like to thank Anthony Hish for the music and we would like to thank you all for listening. Uh, Yeah, if you ever have anything you would like to tell us, email us at podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine has been Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.